There's an old saying, you can't get there without a plan. And the same with any goal. You can't get there without strategy. As the United States and other countries try to defend against new and evolving cybercrimes, there needs to be a national cybersecurity strategy. In 2018, the Trump administration released the national cybersecurity strategy that included four pillars. They were defend the homeland by protecting networks, systems, functions, and data. Promote American prosperity by nurturing a secure, thriving digital economy and fostering strong domestic innovation. Preserve peace and security by strengthening the United States' ability in concert with allies and partners to defer and, if necessary, punish those whose cyber tools were used for malicious purposes. And expand American influence abroad to extend the key tenets of an open, interoperable, reliable, and secure Internet. This, like previous cybersecurity policies and strategies, reflected a long history of defending U.S.-based networks and U.S.-based commerce. And, in some ways, it continued a line of Cold War thinking, decades after the Cold War had ended. In March 2023, the Biden-Harris administration released its National Cybersecurity Strategy, and it reflected a sea change. For one thing, it's quite bold. For instance, there are five pillars within the 2023 NCS. These are defend critical infrastructure, disrupt and dismantle threat actors, shape market forces to drive security and resilience, invest in a resilient future, and forge international partnerships to pursue shared goals. While these two are similar, the Biden-Harris NCS explicitly includes industrial control systems and operational technology devices that were previously not in consideration. The strategy is not law. It's not even a binding statement. The strategy is much more of a roadmap, one that winds its way through a variety of government agencies and private entities. And for that, we're going to need a navigator. And for that, I'm going to introduce you to someone at the heart of public policy around ICS and OT security. This is the story of the Biden-Harris 2023 National Cybersecurity Strategy and of ICS and OT technology. I'm Robert Famosi. This is Error Code. My name is Daniel Jablanski. I'm an OT cybersecurity strategist for Nozomi Networks. Nozomi Networks is an intrusion detection and anomaly solution for operational technology and industrial control systems. Um, we have four major buckets that we fulfill. One is asset inventory. One is uh, mapping for known vulnerabilities. One is threat detection. And another is situational awareness. So uh, data analytics, basically. I've talked before on Ericode about operational technologies, or more commonly, OT. So what is Danielle's definition of operational technologies? I'm glad you asked. I actually just wrote a paper on this. Um, not to, to read word from word, but it is easy to get convoluted. So I will actually open that up here. Some people talk about operational technology as, quote unquote, an umbrella term. I'm not sure that's the best way to think about it. I understand that. Some people think OT and industrial controls as synonyms for each other, but the definition is much more nuanced. So OT and ICS technologies include a wide range of machines and equipment to include things like pumps, compressors, valves, turbines, etc. Um, but when we talk about industrial control systems, those are the systems that encompass operations management and supervisory control of local or physical controls. So that's where it gets a little bit convoluted, but those 
ICS systems are programmed and monitored to direct one or more process operating at scale. So they might not be the actuators and the valves themselves, but they're tasked with performing the monitoring, maintenance, and direction of those physical controls themselves. So then where would SCADA fall? SCADA is the umbrella term, right? Supervisory control and data acquisition brings those two components together. And then if we were to confuse things even more, where does the industrial internet of things fall? There's definitely a play with the industrial internet of things. Um, it's really about the scale, complexity, interoperability, and programmability of the sensors that we think of as IoT that makes them a quote unquote industrial application. So uh, you know, a consumer Nest product in one home is not an industrial level application. Uh, if you had a company like Signify come into an airport and replace all of the lighting with smart connected uh, lighting that is owned and operated by that company that deploys the technology and they run their own networks that are connecting to your network infrastructure and you're paying for that integration over time. Um, and it's also connected to the efficiency of your energy bill. That is industrial IoT. So we've bandied the term around already. What is Danielle's definition of critical infrastructure? When we talk about critical infrastructure, I think it's worth breaking that down. And so I typically think of, of legacy technology within critical infrastructure and then the kind of smart connected facilities like hospitals, data centers, financial services, et cetera. Um, it's not the best distinction you know, out there, but um, I think that we need to break down um, some of the transactional nature between these sectors, what relies on what other sector and what is disruption and what is uh, cascading impact look like for those sectors specifically? Um, what does cascading impact look like for maybe a non-sector specific portfolio of uh, targets? Um, so again, there's a lot of research and analysis and a lot of data to look at in, in this field. And um, that's one I've been really keen to understand. I also think we need to do a lot more to help, like I said, that promise that we need from government help industry execs understand, you know, how do I cut through the noise and really get to work? Um, and I think there are a ton of great people doing that. There's there's different, um, you know, contractors and companies that we work with and that are on the market. Um, sometimes they're really expensive, but I think that we need kind of a better model for, okay, we know the strategy. How do we get it done? Creating such hierarchies and managing risks associated with these non-traditional devices, well, that's kind of a full-time job. And that's where the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, comes into play. Wait, did I pronounce that right? CISA. CISA. Seriously, it's not that hard. It is pronounced CISA. I don't know who made that decision, and I don't think I've ever heard anyone correct anyone on how you say it, so no worries. So what does CISA have to do with anything? Yeah, uh, CISA is the uh, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Um, I facilitate a lot of relationships with CISA, both um, as a, an industry participant, but also uh, via Nozomi Networks. So we plug into the OT Cybersecurity Coalition um, that's run by a group in D.C. to have the government, whether it's this or another agency, get feedback from a group of experts from multiple companies, some competitive, some partners on OT and ICS security issues. Um, so I do a little bit of both. And uh, I reply to a lot of the you know publications, foreign reg or federal register um, requests and things like that. Okay, here's another definition. What's sector risk management agency? So the sector risk management agency is the sector specific group that is actually uh, required to regulate each sector. So CISA is 
a risk management agency for a couple of sectors, but not all of them. And they don't have um, a ton of authority and enforcement where the sector risk management agencies themselves, like TSA and EPA, have more uh, regulatory authority to enforce regulations and standards that they say um, sectors should sectors should adhere to. So each of the 16 critical infrastructures has a sector risk management agency. No, so each each sector that is in critical infrastructure is, is has a sector risk management agency. Some sector risk management agencies oversee more than one sector. Within CISA, there's the Joint Cyber Defense Collaborative, or JCDC. I remember Jen Easterly, CISA's director, rocking it out at her keynote speech at Black Hat USA in 2021. She had a logo for JCDC in the form of the ACDC logo and rock music to match. What I didn't realize was there's actually more than one JCDC. There's also a JCDC for ICS. So it's the Joint Cyber Defense Collaborative. And it's a way for practitioners in industry and government affiliates, whether they're at sector risk agencies, uh, sector risk management agencies, or CISA, or anywhere else, can can plug in if they're part of the program to share information. Now they could share um, articles and announcements. They could share TTPs. They could share, depending on kind of the um, criticality or the confidentiality of information, something in between. It, it really just depends on the setup. Um, and like I said, so the ICS one is is just about a year old now. Um, so it's, it's still getting up and running. Okay. This is starting to sound like the secret services information sharing analysis center or ISAC. How is JCDC an improvement or at least different from that public private initiative? So ISAC is more like service oriented. So you sign up and, and you have, um, deliverables that you expect from the ISAC, whether that's a cadence of notifications, whether that's some type of emails, um, for information sharing. The JCDC for ICS is more fluid. Um, there's no direct deliverables that you can anticipate as a member. It's it's kind of just a resource um, or even a forum for that exchange. I know there's a lot of definitions, but it's important for the discussion that follows. It, it's times like these that it would be really helpful for me to show you a diagram. But given this is a podcast, I'll do my best to narrate through these as we talk more about policy. So there was a book that's out about the persistent engagement theory. And I think it's the author is Michael uh, Fisher Keller. And I just had this um, memory come to me that we were at a conference together at Livermore National Labs a number of years ago. And he is the author of the persistent engagement um, theory. And so now his book is out. And he said to me at that conference, he said, you know, I think your generation has had enough Cold War lessons. I think it's time for, for young people and for the next generation to really shine to, to, to get on, you know, that level. And I think this national security strategy is kind of, again, a sea change that really incorporates another generation of, yes, we've learned lessons from the cold war. And yes, we've read our history books about other, you know, nation state level competition, uh, with China, right. Especially, but it's time to try something new. And I just kind of remembered that today when I saw that his book was out. Um, and he's obviously a great academic and a, a theorist, and he's written a lot about, um, not just persistent engagement, but about cold war. Um, policies. And so I just thought that that was funny that that happened today before this discussion with you. That shift in mindset is important to remember as we talk about the national cybersecurity strategy. The Biden-Harris NCS is much more bold. So it's the first one that really calls out operational technology and industrial control systems as a component worth paying a lot of attention to within critical infrastructure. Critical infrastructure has always been considered critical, um, but the kind of differences between IT and OT are spelled out a little bit more in this this strategy. Um, A number of things are different in terms of making it 
into the strategy, but a lot of the quote unquote debates or ideas within the strategy are not new concepts. Here's one of the new ideas that's actually old. The idea of having software vendors take more responsibility for the security of their code. That's been tossed around since, well, Bill Gates had his MS-DOS code ripped off in the parking lot of Dinah's in Palo Alto, California, and the first EULAs were created shortly after that. Really, in any other industry, if a product is defective, the vendor should bear some responsibility. That's not true in software. So the liability issue is something people have been debating at think tanks, on campuses, in industry, at government tables for many years. Um, I think that this strategy represents a sea change in what is the most audacious goal out there for these different debates and can we get close enough, right? Um, I think that we have realized that there is uh, no win if you don't try, right? And so we're putting a couple of these strategies on paper as a nation to say, you know, if I'm a baseball player, the best way to win the game is for me to hit a home run every time I'm up to bat. That might not happen, but it's an audacious goal. And for this strategy, there are a lot of audacious goals. Now, the devil's always in the details and how those get implemented and how we work with sector risk management agencies. But um, I like this strategy a lot, to be honest with you, because we are essentially swinging for the fences. Okay, one more critical definition. Danielle is a member of the Atlantic Council. What is that? The Atlantic Council is a think tank in Washington, D.C. that works with academics, policymakers, and industry experts to kind of enable um, private-public partnership research, policy discussion, and kind of overall awareness of these key security and policy issues. Um, I serve as a non-resident fellow to a very uh, specific you know, group within the organization, um, but they reach out to me kind of similarly to the OTCC for input on different policy measures or, um, you know, uh, different um processes for rewriting some uh, ideas or initiatives before they come out. So the Atlantic Council weighs in on a number of different policies. Danielle's expertise is in cybersecurity and, in particular, infrastructure. I specifically am asked to to reference and talk about cyber policy the most. Um, They don't always have to be like national level security uh, strategies. They can be kind of, uh, you know, specific requirements that one agency put out. It could be a paper that uh, a university publishes on the topic. It could be really anything that, you know, broadens awareness and captures the main ideas and themes of what's going on in industry or in government or even international kind of cyber crime and conflict. It it really just depends. So why do we have a new national cybersecurity strategy from the White House at this time? So I think anytime there's a a shift in the presidential administration, uh, a new administration wants to have their own strategy. Now, they might, you know, borrow some key concepts and ideas from from previous strategies. And I think that that's definitely the case with this one. Um, But there's, again, a lot of net new on paper that that draws on a number of debates within the cybersecurity community um, and internationally that are on paper for the first time. And how is a strategy different from an executive order? Yeah, so I think that there's a big difference between resources and authorities, and and several people have pointed this out over the last week. Um, we have a ton of resources, and those resources technically do not ascribe to one strategy, right? That's the nature of open source market or open markets. It's the nature of uh, competitive products. It's the nature of our our country, and I think that this strategy is going to do two things. It's going to attempt to rally those resources around the strategy. But also, I think that there's going to be increased pressure from the leaders and from Congress for new authorities within the sector risk management agencies that regulate critical infrastructure. So I'm only speaking to the critical infrastructure piece because that's my my wheelhouse. 
Um, but I think you'll see potentially new authorities for some of the other caveats in the strategy, like the liability issues um, uh, across the federal you know, uh, engagement, which again is also touches critical infrastructure because there are certain um, resources that, for instance, um, provide necessary water and energy to military bases, right? So it's not, um, you know, they're not mutually exclusive. That said, the Biden-Harris 2023 National Cybersecurity Strategy, well, it's not perfect. In fact, Danielle and other members of the Atlantic Council, including Chris Weisopel, Jeff Moss, Katie Nichols, and others, recently annotated the policy, and their annotation appears on the Atlantic Council's website. I'm wondering, though, given the boldness, given the timing, if there wasn't a particular impetus for this new strategy, something that mm, may have necessitated it. The online world has changed a lot since 2018, substantially. For one thing, there's been the colonial pipeline ransomware attack. Here's the BBC. The biggest fuel pipeline system in the United States remains crippled by a cyber attack that's been called the worst of its kind in the US. The Colonial Pipeline ships more than two and a half million barrels of oil a day from the Gulf Coast to the East Coast, but it has been shut down since Friday. Today, emergency powers were invoked to try to avoid fuel shortages. President Biden says there is no evidence of Russian government involvement, but there are some signs that the attack originated in Russia. The attack caused a lot of people, even the ransomware operators themselves, to rethink what they were doing and what they were targeting. And it woke up the various aspects of the United States government to the economic and critical infrastructure consequences of such a ransomware attack. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's something that also has us reflecting on what are the business impacts and the meantime to recovery type discussions that we haven't had based on prior strategies or prior standards and regulations that could cause a similar disruption that impacts populations that maybe isn't a cyber physical uh, ramification, right? There's no explosion, there's no, uh, you know, inherent safety impact, which is a huge concern, right, for our industry. It's something we focus on a lot, but it's not the only scenario that might cause disruption um, or disable access to goods, services, and resources that we need in society. So there's this strategic kind of recalculation of, how do we prevent any of these types of scenarios, not just the kind of um, worst case cyber physical incidents, which we know are very important, but also some of the IT incidents that can have widespread cascading impacts to different uh, populations in society. We've heard a lot about the tension between private industry, commercial interests, and government on the issue of regulation, whether to self-regulate or have the government regulate for them. Yeah, I think to be completely honest, a lot of the tension is overblown. There are, are always going to be companies that, you know, aren't going to be set up in a way that they can meet requirements today. Um, there's an argument to be made that companies should compete on security no matter what. But there's also this uh, risk within a lot of critical infrastructure sectors that you'll price out small businesses that just can't afford some of the requirements in cybersecurity or you'll see a government that tries to take on more of a managed service provider uh, role for different sectors. And that's also not sustainable, really, if you think about it from a financial perspective, but also from a personnel perspective. We can't have government employees, um, you know, doing managed security services for all of these 16 critical infrastructure sectors in an attempt to prevent every would-be scenario. So I think some of the tension is real, and that tension goes back to implementation. And I think the government has made a strong push to 
work with industry to determine what the best model for implementation is. But at the same time, they're asking a lot of industry to get on board. And I think if the government is asking a lot of industry, that also has to come with a promise. And I think that that promise at this point needs to be, we're going to take active measures to streamline all of the best practices, requirements, um, you know, guidance documents, NIST frameworks, uh, CPGs that we've put out there. And we're going to do a better job to, to streamline that for the sector risk management agencies so that if you come to me from a pipeline operator and you say, I don't know which one of these to follow, we're going to have an authority to say, this is what you need to follow. And this is why, and this is how it goes back to that strategy that the Biden-Harris administration put out. And this is how you're going to be um, evaluated based on our authority as a sector risk management agency in line with that strategy. So I think it has to be both, right? There's there's tension, there's um, there's a lot of conversation, there's a lot of relationship management, but I don't think it's a black hole. I think that there are a lot of really necessary steps for success here that everyone realizes are a priority right now. Another new old idea in the Biden-Harris NCS is the call for more cooperation between private industry and the government. And this has been interesting to get the private industry to shake loose some of the information that they've been siloing over the years and sharing it with, in some cases, their direct competitors or with the federal government. Um, so data sharing comes with its own different issues. Like there's a lot of silos across information sharing. There's private sector silos. There's um, government silos. There's industry specific silos. It really depends on kind of ownership of that, you know, information sharing capacity it also depends on the types of data they ask for and, and how it gets distributed and disseminated. Um, when I read into this, I think more of a conversation around a lot of companies have been checking the box for compliance for cybersecurity if they have to for a long time. CISA also has something called Shields Up, a campaign to strengthen the various industries throughout the United States. It's basically an online list of free cybersecurity services and tools from government partners or industry to assist. It's kind of a glorified best practices. The Shields Up, the strategy from the Biden-Harris administration, they both signal checking the box for compliance is not good enough anymore. And I also think that um, there's been this kind of cognitive dissonance around building ongoing dynamic cybersecurity programs. Instead, we've seen a lot of folks start with response capacity. And, and I think sometimes maybe this conversation around resilience has folks starting with, can I back, can I recover right a backup from an incident? Can I do all these things after I've been targeted, after I'm a victim? And I think a lot of this work, a lot of the Shields Up campaign actually says there's so much you can do in between prevention and incident response, yes, it's difficult. Yes, you have to scope it out. Yes, you have to ascribe your resources and your financial you know, budgets to what you can do. But it's not a matter of prevent every you know, you know, uh, probable or possible uh, access point and or be able to you know, survive the worst possible cyber incident you could think of, there's a ton of work to be done in between. And I think this is an invitation for companies, again, with that promise of, okay, what does success look like? According to the government, there's this invitation to say, okay, I can do a lot more in between, I can spend my money more wisely on different, you know, personnel, talent, workforce training, products, etc, to, to do both to make sure that I can prevent some things, not everything, I can respond to some things and the worst case scenario, and I can get regulation right without it just being a checkbox that really doesn't secure my operation 
or, you know, provide safety and resilience to my company or my population, right? Where I, where I exist, my facility um, in the real world at the end of the day. So a lot of OT systems aren't necessarily on the internet. How would they be affected? And what would you be doing in that interim between prevention and response? Great question. So um, a lot of times we reference what's called the Purdue model. It's a reference architecture for OT control networks. And it's basically this setup of layers between your corporate or enterprise networks and your actual control systems. Um, and in between, there's a couple of intermediary systems, a lot of win- Windows-based computers, some Linux systems. And we see a lot of IT uh, tactics, techniques, and procedures targeting these intermediary systems to provide some type of movement um, and 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 uh, escalation of privileges into the control networks. The Purdue model for industrial control system security is a structural model for network segmentation. What it does, it defines six layers within those networks and even goes so far as to specify the components to be found in each of the layers and the logical network boundary controls for securing these networks to protect operational technology from malware and other attacks. Given this structure, have we seen a lot of attacks probing the boundaries between the layers? Luckily, to date, that's been very minimal in terms of actually targeting industrial control systems, networks, and control um, assets, right? The actual kind of um, PLCs that that are in the wild. So the risk there, if you do uh, achieve access into an actual control system, is that you can either go undetected and manipulate whatever that control process is handling, um, there's also, and, and that looks like kind of hijacking what we call native functionality. So if you get to that level, there's not a lot of credential access required. You can pretty much just pass commands if you understand the programming and the logic to those types of control systems. Um, that is one of the more rare cases we see. What we often see is the potential to access an IT network, access a corporate asset, uh, and then exploit a company, right, for ransomware. Um, and then potentially out of, out of an abundance of caution or because that um, system that they use on the IT side is, is critical for business function, for delivery of services, for transactions, you might see a shutdown or a, a, um, a pause in the actual control networks, but it's not that an, a vector has been accessed within that network. And then there's a lot of stuff in between. Um, we see different um, engineering workstations targeted. Uh, and then the potential to manipulate the actual control process, again, is pretty opaque. It really depends on the scenario. It depends on the environment. And it depends on, you know, levels of segmentation, again, credentials. Um, there's a lot of different points that go into assessing, you know, the root cause of an incident, but also the level of severity from the impacts there. Who then might these cyber criminals be? Are we talking about common criminals out for financial gain? Or are we actually talking about nation states? Or are we talking somewhere in between? So nation states definitely have the capacity for the most sophisticated types of incidents. They've been doing a lot of the reconnaissance for a number of years. So they know some of the networks that they've, you know, been doing reconnaissance in better than say a criminal gang. Um, a criminal gang that operates, you know, for a ransomware payout is really looking at how can they have the biggest bang for their buck. Um, so that's a very opportunistic driver. Um, you see a lot of copy and paste and, and reuse of, of known kind of um, TTPs in that sense. But then you also have hacktivists. You have kind of a different range of actors. We also consider the negligent insider threat to be a threat actor. Um, you can have misconfiguration issues. You can have change management failures, uh, documentation risks. And uh, 
um, you know, with more data, there's more complexity, but there's also more ownership of risk. And I think that's what the boards are kind of starting to, to realize that, you know, we've, we've introduced complexity and we've benefited from technology, but now we need to really assess where we stand on security and where our holes are. Right. And that's a visibility issue at the end of the day. And so, um, you're always going to have somebody exploit that issue in cyberspace. I don't think that's going away. Um, I think at a nation state level, the key issue is really asymmetry. Um, the Ukraine conflict and other conflicts around the world, I don't think you'll see a cyber kind of tit for tat uh, conflict in the near future. I think it's a, an added way to place pressure between asymmetric powers. Um, and that's a concern, right? Asymmetric powers. This is another area of discussion that's been going on for years. The idea that one party is better equipped to go on the offensive or on the defensive. The United States, for example, has yet to use its full offensive or defensive arsenal for that matter. And that's good because it keeps everyone guessing. The strategy that came out from the United States is saying we're not going to wait for the parity to be closer for any nation, right? We're going to do more now, even if the goals are audacious, to put ourselves in a better prevention mindset across the nation and not continue to be reactionary as more criminal gangs earn more money, recruit more people, and and nation states become, you know, do more reconnaissance, understand more control systems. We're not we're not inviting anyone to reduce the learning curve to target us, right? And again, I wondered how much of the strategy was informed in response to any learnings that we've observed from Ukraine that may have gone into this national strategy, or at least into this draft. I think there are a couple of learnings. I think that at the end of the day, um, one could argue that Ukraine was actually the most well-prepared for any type of uh, cyber intrusion, given their history with some of their uh, adversarial behavior from Russia. Um, that's not to say that, you know, other nations aren't prepared, but Ukraine knew what was coming and they've known what was coming and they've known the uh, capacity that Russia had to manipulate and disrupt um, some of their digital technologies. They've seen it in the past and they were not, you know, blind to that fact going into a kinetic conflict. Um, I think that there was a really amazing success story in transferring their energy connectivity into Europe. Um, I think that that was underplayed for some reason. I think it's an awesome story. I, I've shared it multiple times. I think it's uh, incredible. Uh, there was a story I shared yesterday about some of the cyber incident response that's taken place and a lot of the again, classified um, conversations and information sharing. A lot of defenders have done really great work to build up not only Ukraine, but also some of the other surrounding nations there. Um, back to the asymmetry problem, I think other nations who are not not as well prepared and don't have similar capacities, peer capacities in cyberspace would be more concerning to me than just purely focusing on the dominant players. Admittedly, though, Ukraine is a rare example. They had eight years or so of being tested by Russian offensive operations. And as a result, they've developed a very mature defense online. I think that Ukraine having the issues around black energy and having their energy facilities targeted definitely is a lesson learned and is baked into how we think about critical infrastructure, uh, interdependence between different sectors, and digital technologies that are underpinning all of those critical services, products, and resources that we rely on. I think that, that nobody could argue against that. Um, but I think all of those other pieces that I mentioned come from outside of the Ukraine conflict, right? The liability issue, 
uh, something Chris Inglis has has said, uh, he calls affirmative intentionality, um, which is asking more of industry to raise the bar on cyber responsibility, liability and resilience building. Um, I don't I think that that might be complementary to the Ukraine conflict. But I think that those have been, again, debates that we've seen play out for a number of years with nobody really wanting to stake a claim in the success or failure of them that we're now saying, let's give it a go. So in terms of the 2023 NCS and beyond, what are some of the geopolitical tensions that are concerning to ICS? Yeah, I, I think I don't, <laughs> predictions are always faulty. Um, I will underline again this uh, theme of asymmetry. And I think that in future conflicts, regardless of the nation states, asymmetry in cyberspace will present a problem. Um, and it'll present a problem for the lesser capable component of that conflict. And I think that we'll see a lot of noise. Um, we still don't know what a red line, a quote unquote red line looks like in cyberspace. I think we're getting a clearer depiction of if you do something bad enough, we'll come after you. We saw that in the Colonial Pipeline incident. That's not written into international law anywhere, but a bunch of people said enough is enough. We're going to do something about this and we're going to set a precedent. So that kind of precedent has been set. But I do think you could continue to see a lot of noise, a lot of reconnaissance, um, and a lot of meddling, especially if it's it's within another uh, active conflict to cause uncertainty, to potentially even point attribution away from the actual players and to try to run with maybe a narrative um, in the open source world that some actor created some type of disruption, then it might not have been that actor. I think we have to be really careful uh, about the information that comes out of any conflict when there's any type of cyber or digital domain referenced. Um, you know, really check your sources and understand that. And especially in the OT domain, we've already seen this today where uh, a threat actor will uh, extort um, a, an owner and operator of some type of critical service, and they will say to the public or say to a reporter or try to present documentation on the internet that they have access to the industrial control systems and the physical processes themselves, and everyone will panic. And if that were true, there's reason to panic, but it's not always true. And we really have to investigate, you know, is a screenshot of a human machine interface just a screenshot of a human machine interface? Or is it actually demonstrating the capacity to send commands to this process I rely on? Is it potentially accessing a safety instrumented system that is responsible for constantly taking in inputs about the environment to make sure that this operation is actively safe? Um, those are big concerns. And I think we have to definitely do our due diligence, especially in times of conflict, to understand and to corroborate the information coming out of those conflicts. I wonder if there are different strengths and weaknesses. For example, a nation might be really good offensively, but weak defensively. Or conversely, weak offensively, but very good defensively. Uh, so it's it's an interesting question. Um, the U.S. is understated, I think, in its global role of being very capable to be a dominant cyber player. We have not seen the full capacity of the United States capabilities unleashed in the real world. Um, that's a good thing for us. You know, we live in the United States. But when it comes to, quote unquote, bad actors, we typically think of Russia, North Korea and Iran in cyberspace. Um, there are a number of other countries that have been putting a lot of effort into building up their own capacity and capability. Now, those countries obviously have, you know, bilateral agreements with other countries. We have the UN, we have all these other kind of roles and responsibilities of diplomacy. Um, but we see teams like Brazil, like <laughs> they have a great infrastructure built for, for cybersecurity. 
Um, now, I don't know the strategy of theirs. I don't know if they have persistent engagement. I don't know if they defend forward the way that we have specified in the United States. Um, but it gets back to something interesting within the industry that we've seen play out, which is, is it a red team? Is it a blue team? Is it a purple team? And I think that'll be interesting to watch over the next 10 years, which is if a country today considers itself asymmetrically um, not as robust as one of those bad actors, are they going to you know, seek protection from another key player? Are they going to build up their own robust capacity and capabilities? Do they have the pipeline to do that? Um, and I think that in the United States, you know, the government is asking us in industry to be a part of the solution, right? And I don't know if we'll see the same um, strategy play out in other countries, but I do think it will all come down to, to the asymmetry piece. So in terms of cyber criminals, we currently rely on existing treaties and so forth. If a criminal were to go to a country that we have a favorable relationship with, we could extradite that criminal back to the United States to stand charges. We don't really have a blanket international agreement around people that commit crimes online. Yeah, you're right. There's so obviously in the United States, there's the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, the CFAA. Um, we've seen some uh, interdiction of treason. We've seen the UN has their own. Uh, the They also have something called um, the GGEs, the government government's group of experts working on these issues. We've seen some court cases around terrorism. Um, and we also have the Talon Manual. There's two versions of that that look at international law. Um, but then we also have kind of the industry level uh, issues of liability and in, in cyber insurance that you see across the board. So yeah, there's a criminal actor, um, but maybe, you know, Target can't hunt down that actor, but they get to, uh, you know, recoup some of their losses because of some of their in insurance claims, but then some of those insurance claims don't want to pay out for an act of, of war. Um, I actually think that the needle is being moved a little bit faster in the courts for industry and with, with the cyber uh, insurance uh, uh, industry. It's a hardened industry, which means there are fewer providers and then they can um, ask for more money for, for coverage because they own that share of the market. So that's, that's still hardened right now. But um, even with players pulling out of that market, there's a ton of research going into it. Um, and the science is not perfected yet, um, but nobody does uh, that type of science better than the insurance providers themselves. So the insurers, the reinsurers, they're working on it. They're they're paying brilliant minds to work on it. Um, and I think that they will make some headway at the same time that these nation states are pursuing aggressive strategies to, you know, rally around whatever they want to get done, but also to understand that they're not going to be able to police this and they aren't able to police this. And it's only getting, you know, worse and uh, more volume, right. Of, of attacks, incidents, vulnerabilities, uh, gangs, et cetera. I wondered if Danielle was thinking that we might be heading toward a future state of having a cyber NATO where nations strike alliances and agreements among each other. I think we kind of already do to a certain extent, right? International law requires cooperation. Um, we have to extradite people when we, when we in the United States seek to legally, you know, uh, indict and and um, press charges against somebody. We've, we've seen that play out in a number of different instances and the country that that person resides in or that group resides in has to work with us. So I think we've seen some of these agreements already. Um, I know that NATO has a lot of ties and that when I was at Stanford, we did some work with with them and um, different countries within NATO have uh, capacity sharing, I think, burden sharing on, on some of what they do. They have Interpol that obviously does cybersecurity as well. Um, so they're not, you know, resigned to that fact. And there's also a, a new UN charter 
that looks at reshaping um, some of the criminal activity and focusing in on intent, which I think is is really um, not ironic if we see Chris Inglis saying affirmative intentionality from the private sector and the creators of technology and, and the industry folks, and then in the criminal space, trying to prove intent. Um, it's really difficult. It's it's uh, hotly debated, of course, um, but it's happening at the same time because we know that law enforcement cannot police all of cyberspace every single day, everywhere in the world. And getting over that requires some really, really uh, difficult tasks. And again, I think it requires some um, big goals, big novel goals. I'd like to thank Danielle for coming on the show and talking about the Biden-Harris 2023 National Cybersecurity Strategy, and in particular, its renewed focus on OT and ICS elements. Policy is an area of cybersecurity that we don't often talk enough about, and it's important. It's important for our governments to figure out how the Internet actually works and for representatives such as us to come forward and explain it to them. Otherwise, policy will be created that has no meaning in the real world. And that does nobody good. Hey, if you're enjoying Error Code, tell a friend. I'm sure there are other people out there who like narrative information security podcasts. And I'd really like to hear from you. DM me at robertvamosi at infosec.exchange on Mastodon. And tell me what you like. And even what you don't. And coming up, I've got some great episodes talking about a deep dive into what we mean by the electrical grid and how secure is it really. I hope you'll subscribe so you don't miss out.